So true, so true. What a blessing it is to be with God's people in his presence. Amen? I missed you all last week. It was, it was uh, delightful to have some time and family worship at home, and I heard some good things from different folks doing that at home, but I missed being together with all my brothers and sisters and being able to lift the name of our God together. There's something just rich and special about doing that. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is um, being part of a body, being part of a local church. We thank you for the gift of corporate worship, of being able to be together and <clears throat> lift your name with those who, who have called upon you for salvation, uh, who have tasted and experienced your grace. Uh, what a joy it is to look together to the Savior. And what a blessing it is to have the gift of your word. Uh, thank you for giving us this time, <clears throat> this Lord's Day, to be together under the teaching of your word. And I, I pray for all of us uh, in these minutes and moments ahead um, that as we look to the scriptures, uh, that the Holy Spirit would truly be the one that is our teacher. Uh, as we've already sang this morning, Holy Spirit, come. And, and we do ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be working in our midst. Uh, we know these minds of ours are dull. Uh, our hearts at time can grow callous. We can grow insensitive to the truth, insensitive to the realities of eternity. And so we need your ministry among us. We need you to take your word and drive its truth straight into our hearts. To help us to not just understand the information, <coughs> but to truly see the significance of, the thing, of these things for our lives. And so, Lord God, I pray that in this time ahead that you would help all of us to be locked in on what you have revealed through your word. Change these hearts of ours. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a, a few months back. Um, I was blessed to be a part of a pastor appreciation luncheon put on by one of our, our local schools. And during the luncheon, the students there did a little skit where uh, a little skit that they walked through that they called the mini hats of a pastor. Now in that skit, each of the students had different hats on and each hat represented a different job or responsibility that we have as pastors. And they had hats on that said things like teacher and administrator and counselor and preacher and conflict manager and volunteer coordinator and fundraiser. And I, I think they even had one on that said part-time custodian. But all in all, I think the students wore over a dozen different hats. And uh, that then reminded all of us pastors of all the different responsibilities that we have. And some of us started to panic about all the responsibilities, all the things that we needed to get to. But even though we, we pastors do wear a lot of hats, we fill a lot of different roles in the life of a local church, there is one role that stands above all of the others. Uh, there is one responsibility that I take with a far greater seriousness, with a far more sober approach than any of my other responsibilities. And that responsibility is making crystal clear, is to make crystal clear for each and every one of us the realities of the gospel. The realities of the gospel. You see, at the end of the day, 
my most important pursuit is to show you the only way to eternal life. Because in the long run, in eternity, that's the only thing that really matters, right? That's the only thing that really matters. The great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter famously said, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And that's reality. I mean, what kind of pastor, what kind of shepherd would I be if I simply focused on making the Titanic more comfortable for you? You know, here's how to have a better marriage. Here's how to have a better family. Here's how to have a more fulfilling job. Now, those aren't bad things. But, but if I simply focused on making the Titanic more comfortable for you, instead of pointing out that the ship is going down, and praise God, there's a lifeboat. And the reality is that the ship is sinking. Maybe better said, our ship is sunk. God has made it so very clear in his revelation to us in the, the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God, that we are all sinners. Each and every one of us without exception. We are all rebels against heaven. We have all, in more ways than we can possibly count, we have all spurned God's good laws and ways. We have arrogantly tried to play the sovereign. Each and every one of us play the sovereign over our own lives. And guess what we've done? We've made a mess. We've made a mess. We've made a mess of our lives. And we've made a mess of God's good world. And our rebellion demands justice. Our rebellion demands justice. Our sinfulness, brothers and sisters, demands a holy response. And that holy response is coming. This is reality. It's coming. It's coming in the form of judgment. reality is it's coming in the form of eternal judgment eternal separation from the God whom we have rejected and from his goodness which we've scorned again that that's reality that's not just religious talk that's reality but the reality but reality is also that on this Titanic awaiting our judgment there is a lifeboat there's only one but the good news is it's big enough for all. And that lifeboat is Jesus Christ. You see, through the reality of his sinless life and his atoning death and his triumphant resurrection, Jesus delivers us from the judgment that we deserve and he secures us in blessings, the riches of which we cannot fully fathom yet. One day in glory we will, but now we can't even fully fathom the blessings that he has secured for us. And it's all ours, all of it, Simply as a gift. Simply as a gift. It's all of grace. This deliverance, this, all these blessings, they're ours by simply resting in him. Simply by faith in Jesus. We are saved from the just penalty of our sins and receive all the blessings of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And, and that is the glorious gospel. That's the gospel. 
Jesus lived the sinless life that we failed to live in order to give us the gift of his perfect righteousness. And then he died the death that we deserve to die upon that cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. All of our sins so that we would never have to know that penalty. And he rose from the dead. In order to make it clear to the whole world that the work was finished. Sin and death were defeated. And to bless us with a preview of the future that awaits us. And again, it's all ours, all of it, simply by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. And my primary role as your pastor, the hat that by far is the most important that I wear, is to make sure that your understanding of the gospel is clear and your grip on it is tight. I want you to know without a doubt where true salvation is found. And I want you to be clinging to that salvation above and and apart from everything else. This is why we are are gospel-centered here at Redemption. We are a gospel-centered church. We want everyone who calls this church home, from the senior saints to the kids and toddler church, to see both the simplicity and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want every person, every person who calls this church home, we want every person to marvel at the Father's plan to save us through the finished work of Christ applied to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a gospel people who truly know where our only hope is found. We don't ever want to be guilty here of playing fast and loose with the gospel. We don't ever want to be guilty here of muddying the waters when it comes to how we receive eternal life and stand in the presence of holy God. We want to make sure that our understanding of the gospel is clear and our grip on it is tight. That's why we are gospel-centered here. And that's also why I approach a text like the one we're going to look at this morning with absolute seriousness. We, we, need, we need texts like we're going to look at this morning. We need texts that challenge us, texts that confront us, texts that make the reality of the gospel so very, very, very clear for us. We need to text like we're going to look at this morning texts that tell us that when it comes to salvation through Jesus Christ, it's all or nothing. When it comes to salvation through Jesus Christ, it's all or nothing. And we need to hear and heed the message. That message, it's all or nothing. We need to hear it and heed it with absolute seriousness. And we need to do that, brothers and sisters, because of the dangerous, game, dangerous games that we play. You see, sometimes with this this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes we hold it too loosely. Sometimes we flirt a little too much with other saviors. Sometimes we don't act like people who understand that when it comes to this salvation in Jesus Christ, it's all or nothing. Sometimes we don't act like people who really understand that. Let me explain to you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles now and turn over to the New Testament book of Galatians. Turn to the New Testament book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. And here, our church is Redemption Bible Church. We want you to be able to follow along as we work through the scriptures. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and slip up your hand. We'll have one of the ushers bring one over to you. But we want you to be able to follow along with us as we work through the text. Galatians chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to look at a text in which this all-or-nothing reality of the gospel is made powerfully, and I might say frighteningly, clear. 
But before we dive into the specifics of the text, let me just take a few moments and bring you up to speed with the context of our text. Some of you are new here this morning, uh, and for some of us, we've been working through Galatians, but we had snowpocalypse happen, and then we haven't been in Galatians as much recently. So let me just kind of bring you back up to speed uh, with the context of our text for this morning. Uh, As I explained uh, before we we had snowpocalypse two weeks ago, um, this letter to the Galatians is really the New Testament's manifesto on freedom. You can look at it that way. It's the New Testament's manifesto on freedom. Words related to freedom and words related to the corresponding idea of slavery occur over 25 times in this short little book, more than any other book in the New Testament. This is a book about freedom. And here, in Galatians chapter 5, we find, as it were, the banner verse in this manifesto on freedom. Look at the text. Look at Galatians 5.1. And this, this verse right here, Galatians 5.1, is really, you could say it's the book of Galatians in a nutshell. Because this one verse really, really sums up the heart of what Paul is getting at in this letter. Look at what he writes. Verse 1, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul, what he's talking about here is he's talking about this freedom that comes through our salvation, this freedom that is ours through Jesus Christ. But he's also addressing the, the Galatian danger of holding too loosely to that freedom, holding too loosely to the gospel itself, and, and finding themselves back under bondage. However, in order to really understand what is meant by all this talk of freedom and, and bondage, let me, let me take a moment and just remind you of the situation in which these Galatian churches found themselves in. If you remember the opening of this letter, Paul opens this letter with a, a stinging rebuke of the Galatians. Go ahead, go ahead and actually turn back there. Turn back to Galatians chapter 1. <clears throat> and here in, in Galatians 1, after a very, very brief greeting, uh, brief, more brief than any of the ones in Paul's other letters, Uh, Paul says to them, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He writes to them, verse 6, chapter 1. I am astonished, he said. I'm amazed. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a what? What does it say? Turning to a different gospel. Paul says not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort The gospel of Christ. You see, after Paul and Barnabas had planted these these young churches, and then Paul and Barnabas went back to their ascending church in Antioch, it seems like some new teachers had arrived. Some new folks had come to town. And and they were preaching a different gospel. And then from what we continue to see in this letter, it appears that this different gospel that these new teachers were preaching, that these new teachers were selling, was a legalistic gospel, was a legalistic approach to salvation. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2. And here in chapter 2, what Paul does is he, he shares a story about his, his home church, his church in Antioch, and how they too had a problem with legalistic teaching in the church. Paul explains that there were some Jewish Christians in the church who started distancing themselves then from the Gentile Christians, and they were distancing themselves because they thought that made them more holy. We're going to separate from these, these Gentile Christians. And, and Paul says that even the apostle Peter, the great apostle Peter, got caught up in all this. He was visiting the church and he got caught up in all of this. And so in chapter 2, look at verses 15 and 16. Paul shares his rebuke of those Jewish Christians there in Antioch. But this rebuke that he shares is a rebuke that also appears aimed at the Galatians and their situation. Look at what he writes. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 
He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that last phrase, by works of the law, no one will be justified, is really important. You see, the Apostle Paul here, through that term, justified, he's talking about a person standing before holy God as judge. And he's saying that, that our good works, our works of the law, they're not enough. They won't save us from God's judgment. Rule keeping won't undo what we have already done. Paul's saying here that the law won't save you. That's really an important message in this book. You see, these new teachers who had come to town, they had come to town with an old approach. Uh, they had come to town with a, an old covenant approach. And Paul goes on to show this in chapters 3 and 4. He shows that these, these new teachers were trying to place these Galatian Christians under the old covenant law as an approach to life. That's why he says to them, look at, look at his opening in chapter 3. Look at what he says to them in chapter 3, verse 1. How would you like this on a Sunday morning? The pastor gets up and says, oh, foolish Galatians. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what he's saying there is, I made the gospel very clear to you. I placarded it in front of your eyes. I made clear the gospel. Then he continues. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And how do we receive the spirit? By hearing with faith. So he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? But here's the thing. That's what the Galatians were believing. That's what they were believing. They were being told that they now had to add in all of their own efforts, all of their their keeping of the Mosaic law in order to truly be accepted by God. They were being told that and they were buying it. They thought that, that keeping the old covenant was now the key to godliness. And so Paul pushes against that in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, he walks through the true purpose of the law. The true purpose of it is to expose our sin, to expose our, our failure, our inability, and then take us by the hand and lead us to Christ. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. And then in chapter 4, he gives this, this Old, Tel- Old Testament analogy contrasting the life of faith with the life of works. He talks about, about Ishmael and Isaac, Hagar and Sarah, and he says, like Sarah, and like Isaac, the child of promise. That's the way we are as the people of God, trusting in Jesus. But you go back to the old way, you're going back to bondage. You're like Hagar. You're like Ishmael. There's one that's a, the free life of promise. But the other one is the frustrating life of slavery and bondage. And through all of that, Paul is challenging these Galatians to understand that to try to be saved by your own efforts is slavery. But embracing salvation through the finished work of Christ is true freedom. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Again, look at what he says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
But in our text for this morning, in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 5, uh, we come to what I'll say is an essential piece of the puzzle of what exactly was going on in those churches in Galatia. And what I mean by that is, here in this text, Paul addresses the mechanism that these new teachers who would come to town, these legalists who would come to town, the mechanism that they were using to try to get the Galatians to accept their system of law-keeping. And we see that mechanism mentioned starting in verse 2. Look at the text. Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, there's the mechanism, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And here what Paul is doing is he's showing the what that he's calling them to stand against there in verse 1. Again, remember he said in verse 1, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And it seems what has happened is these new teachers who had come to town, they were Jews, and they were presenting themselves as Christians. And they were telling these primarily Gentile Christians, these primarily Gentile Christians in Galatia, he was, they were telling them that if you truly want to be part of God's people, if you truly want to be godly, what you need to do is you need to take that old covenant mark. And you take that Old Testament sign of circumcision. But in response to that teaching that was being promoted there in Galatia, Paul gives a very sober warning. A very sober warning to any of his readers who were thinking about doing this. Look again at the text. He tells them, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed or cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. That's some pretty scary stuff pretty serious stuff. An important question for us to ask this morning is, is why is Paul giving such a serious warning? Why why is circumcision such a big deal? Paul, why, why is circumcision such a big deal? We need to ask, Paul, why do you need to drop such a heavy hammer on these Galatians? Why why such a stern warning for these people who simply wanted to add some old covenant ways? To their New Testament faith. Maybe the more important question for us to ask this morning is, Paul, what do all these warnings to these first century Galatians have to say to us in our 21st century Christianity? What what does all this severe warning about circumcision have to do with us and our 21st century lives? Well, in order to understand why this is such a big deal and how this actually applies to us, We first need to understand the practice of circumcision itself. As commentator Philip Ryken explains, circumcision involved cutting off of the male foreskin. In the Old Covenant, this was a way of saying that a Jew was separated from the world. But it was also a way of saying that if he ever rejected God, he himself would be cut off from God's people. So you see, circumcision was a sign of a covenant commitment made by the Old Testament people of God. It was a sign that they were different at the source. It was a sign that God had given them in order to set apart his people from the rest of the world and to make it very clear to themselves that they were different. It was a sacred and intimate mark 
initiating them into the old covenant people. However, over time, what happened was circumcision came to be seen as the initiation into the Mosaic covenant itself. So if you wanted to, quote-unquote, convert to Judaism, circumcision then was your final act of conversion. It was seen by the Jews as the mark, the, the mark of the true people of God, a way of making very clear that you were committing yourself to living your life under the requirements of the Mosaic law. So as a Gentile, once you went through the Jewish rite of circumcision, you, you were no longer seen as what they called a God-fearer. Instead, you were now viewed as a true Israelite. You were circumcised, you were a true Israelite. And, and that leads to the problem that Paul's addressing with these Galatians. Look again at our text. Look at the repeated warning that Paul gives. Look at the text. He says in verse 2, if you accept circumcision. And then he repeats it in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. And what the ESV is trying to capture here with this repetition of this word accept is the passive nature of the Greek verb that Paul is using here. When he is warning them against being circumcised, he's warning them against accepting a system. You see, in Galatia, circumcision was being used as a rite of initiation. It was an initiation into an old covenant approach to life. And the old covenant approach to life that was being promoted there in Galatia was using the old covenant as a means of justification. Again, look at the text. Look what's happening here. Watch Paul's parallel statements in this text. In verse 2, he says, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision. In verse 3, it's, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. But then how does Paul put it in verse 4? Parallel idea, but he uses some different wording. Look what he says. Instead of every man who accepts circumcision, he says, you who would be, what does he say? Justified by the law. And that's the issue right there. That's the issue. These Gentile Galatian Christians were being told that if you truly want to be accepted by God, if you truly want to be part of God's people and stand justified in God's presence, then you need to do so through keeping the law. They're being told faith in Jesus, that's that's not enough. That's not enough. You also need to work a system. That's what's at the root of all this talk about circumcision. Circumcision was simply the initiation, right? into the system. It was the means of, of going public, as it were, with your commitment to live by the law. It was, in a sense, your, your signature on the dotted line. Your commitment to pursue justification by the law. It was actually a way of saying, yeah, Christ is good, but he's not enough. I need to add my own righteousness, my own works, to the equation. And in so doing... These Galatians were playing a dangerous game. They were playing the game of self-righteousness. The game of self-righteousness. What do I mean by that? The game of self-righteousness? I mean foolishly playing with the idea that we can somehow stand before holy God on the merits of our own righteousness. Foolishly playing with the idea that somehow I can stand before God on the merits of my own righteousness. That's the game they were playing. That's what they were playing. That's what was going on there in Galatia. They were being told that their righteousness, their law keeping, their works and efforts, their adherence to a system personified and sealed in the act of circumcision 
was somehow needed to finish off their salvation. You need this to truly be saved. They were being told that they needed to contribute to their own salvation by their own righteousness. And here's the thing. Just like the Galatians, just like the Galatians, we can all be tempted. We can all, every single one of us, be tempted to think that our standing before God needs to be based even just a little on something that we contribute. Each and every one of us, we can all be tempted to think that our standing before God needs to be based even just a little on something that we're bringing to the table, on something that we contribute. There is this, brothers and sisters, there's this siren song, this seductive call of self-righteousness, the siren song of self-righteousness. And it calls out to each and every one of us. For some of us, it comes to us in the tune of our pride. We like the tune of our pride. Because it's a song about me. <laughs> we like the tune of our pride. What happens here? We, we look at God's law. We say, oh, God's law is good. But then in our pride, we say, well, God's law is good. Now watch me be good. I can do these things. We think that somehow we can truly keep God's law. But the problem is that in our pride, we overestimate the ability of our own goodness. What happens is we refuse to believe the scriptures when they say, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64. And no one does good, not even one. Romans chapter 3. We think that somehow we are excluded from that. <laughs> well, that means everybody else, not me. We, we overestimate our own ability of goodness. And then we also underestimate true holiness. We underestimate true holiness. We in our pride somehow think that we, in our own efforts, we can somehow pull off the holiness of God. We think that somehow we can be truly pure in our actions, truly pure in our thoughts, truly pure in our affections, truly pure in our motivations. And what we do is we downplay the, the rich depth and beauty of true holiness. We foolishly think that we sinful creatures can somehow pull this off. And we think that way because we like the tune of our pride. We like the tune of our pride. Self-righteousness appeals to our pride. Show everybody how good you can be. But for others, it's not just the appeal to the pride. Instead, for others, the siren song comes to what I'll call notes of confusion. For some, the struggle with self-righteousness, is it's not as much about pride as it is about ignorance. They simply believe that religion is about doing. They think, well, isn't being holy and being accepted by God and getting salvation, isn't that about doing a bunch of religious stuff? Isn't it about trying to be a good person? They, they simply think this is what they're supposed to do. Aren't you supposed to work for this stuff? And people who believe this are found in every corner of the globe and in every religion around the globe. Let me say it this way. There might even be some of you here today who think that's what Christianity is all about. It's about doing all this good stuff to somehow earn God's acceptance. Isn't that what being a Christian is about? It's about going to church, reading your Bible, doing all this good stuff so that God will like me. And so you set about trying to do. You try to keep all the rules. But what you're really doing in your ignorance 
is marching along to the siren song of self-righteousness. And I mean this in love when I say that. That's, that march is going to lead you straight to your ruin. It's going to lead you straight to your ruin. You see, here's the reality of our situation. The reality of our situation is that we are, are all sinners who cannot undo our guilt or sinfulness simply by going to church or giving some money or helping an old lady to cross the street. Believing that our good works can somehow change the situation is like a mass murder hoping the judge will let him off because he promised to buy some Girl Scout cookies. Sure, it's going to help the Girl Scouts. But it's not going to do anything to undo all the evil that he's done. And who's to say he's not just buying the Girl Scout cookies because he likes Thin Mints? Or Samoas, those are really good ones, right? But here's the thing, it's the same way with our, our self-righteous deeds. They don't undo the evil that we've done. And they're often driven by our love for thin mints, so to speak. They're often driven by our impure motives. So we need to make sure that there's no confusion on this. Your works will never, never, ever save you. Never. They will never save you. But sometimes, here's what happens. Sometimes the song of self-righteousness, the siren song of self-righteousness, comes to us through what I'll call the melody of the controlling. And what I mean by that, there are, there are people, there are teachers, there are the unscrupulous, there are wolves in sheep's clothing who will use our pride or who will use our ignorance to try to sell us freedom. The promise is freedom, but in reality only leads to bondage. And these teachers, what they do, these teachers, they present themselves as the answer people. They tell us, you, oh, I have a secret to the life that you want, the marriage that you want, all those blessings that you hunger for. I have a secret, but then the way they do, they drop a bunch of rules on you. They set up all these hoops for you to jump through. They give you a system. And what they end up doing is they make you slaves to that system, often asking you to give a lot of money. They can tell other people about that system. System big on promises, but empty on deliverance. And what happens is these Pied Pipers that lead you along, they end up in control. They end up in control. <laughs> and these systems, they go by a lot of different names. Prosperity gospel, fundamentalism, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Watchtower Society, and on and on I could go. But each one, each and every one is playing the same song. It's the siren song of self-righteousness. It's a song that says, your standing before God is based on what you do, so here's a bunch of stuff for you to do. And that was the song that was being played and growing in popularity in Galatia. They're actually playing a dangerous game. And Paul wants them to see the seriousness of it. And this brings us to the second thing that I want to look at in our text for this morning. Namely, the remedy that we need. We are tempted at times to play a dangerous game. Here's the remedy that we need. Paul, here in this text, through three powerful warnings, he puts an end to playing the game by telling them it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. He says it's either all of Christ and all of grace or it's all of the law. You can't have it both ways. You can't, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you can't make a justification sandwich. A little bit of Jesus work and a little bit of mine and we put them together. It's not the way it works. First, Paul says, look at this text. First, Paul says that we need to realize that with Christ, it's all or nothing. Look at verse 2. 
Paul writes, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you look to your own self-righteousness, what does he say? Christ will be of, what does he say? No advantage to you. The NIV translates that phrase as of no value to you at all. No value at all. But why? Why? Why would Christ be of no value? To a person who adds the works of self-righteousness. Why? Well, he'd be of no value because of the nature of Christ's work. You see, here's the thing. Christ's work is a completed work. It is a finished work. Nothing else is needed. Nothing at all. The obedience that Christ offered was a complete obedience. There isn't anything lacking in his obedience. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but listen to this, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but there's a big difference, right? Yet without what? Without sin. In every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Instead of sinning, Jesus was continually, moment after moment after moment, obedient. There was no off switch With his obedience. As Philippians 2.8 explains. Paul says being found in human form. He Christ humbled himself. By becoming obedient. Listen to this. To the point of death. And not an easy lay your head on the pillow. And wake up in glory. Death. He was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. There was no off switch. With his obedience. His obedience was perfect. It lacked nothing. That's why Paul explains over in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Listen to this, Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, talking about Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that being the obedience of Christ, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. Christ's perfect obedience was for us. And we are made righteous, not by our flimsy, faulty works, but by faith in his perfect, finished work. And that perfect work includes his perfect and complete atonement for our sin. Christ's death offers an absolute atonement. It's not just the starter kit. It's an absolute atonement. Listen carefully to what the prophet Isaiah says. This is Isaiah 53, 6. Listen carefully. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And then listen to this. But the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Laid on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Or as Paul puts it very simply in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. And that's why Paul then can write in Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not just getting us started, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. When Jesus said it is finished, guess what? He meant it. A full pardon, a full pardon, Purchased through his sacrifice, his life given for ours. 
His work is a finished work. His is a perfect obedience. His is a full and complete sacrifice. And his is a triumphant resurrection, making clear, the resurrection makes clear that the sacrifice was accepted. He's not still paying for sin. He's not still experiencing death. The sacrifice was accepted. The price was paid. The way to eternal life is now open. And it's all ours. Simply through faith. Simply through faith. Nothing more is needed. Nothing more is needed. We don't need to add in our own righteousness. We don't need to add to it all of our own suffering. We don't need to add to it because you can't. (laughs) That's the point. You can't add to it. It's all done. It's all done. But here's the thing. When we try to add to it, guess what? We profane the whole thing. We profane the whole thing when we try to add to it. Let Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. When I was a kid... Uh, my dad got to go meet Ken Griffey Jr. Mariner Hall of Famer. I like saying that. <laughs> Mariner Hall of Famer, Ken Griffey Jr. He actually got to go into the, the Mariner's locker room there in the Old Kingdom. And my dad brought with him three of my Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards. Two of his Donruss rookie cards and his upper deck rookie card. And Ken Griffey Jr. signed all three. I had three signed Griffey Jr. rookie cards. But here's what happened. After a while of having those cards, I didn't think that Griffey's signature looked as sharp and as crisp as it did when I first got them. <laughs> you already know where I'm going with this. Yeah, so, so I took those cards, took them out of a little protective sleeve, went and got my Sharpie, and I traced over the, each, each card. I did it three times. I tried to improve on what was already there. But in so doing, what happened... I made it completely worthless. Completely worthless. And that's the same thing that we do. When we try to add our own broken, flawed, faulty righteousness to the finished work of Christ, we profane the whole thing. It's like we're saying to God, I know that you gave your son and his finished work for my salvation, but I don't think that's good enough. Here, look, I'm going to add my signature over the top of it. Now doesn't that look better? Doesn't look better at all, does it? What it looks like is that we don't understand it. It looks like someone who doesn't even get it. See, here's the thing. You either trust in your righteousness or in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You either trust in your work or in his. You can't have it both ways. He's an all or nothing savior. John Calvin put it this way. Whoever wants to have half of Christ loses the whole. Whoever wants to have half of Christ loses the whole. The great Puritan divine William Perkins warned, he, Christ, must be a perfect savior or no savior. There's not a middle ground. Perfect savior or no savior. If you're going to trust in you, and Paul says Christ is of no advantage to you. No advantage to you. With Christ, it's all or nothing. You either turn to him and his finished work, or you rest in yours. But if you're going to rest in yours, then Paul says you need to understand with the law, it's all or nothing. With the law, it's all or nothing. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you're going to put yourself under that system, you have to work the system. And what does the system demand? Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. 
Remember this warning from James? This is James 2.10. James writes, Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law, like we could even do that, fails just one point, has become guilty of all of it. You see what James is saying is the law is a package deal. If you're going to work that system, you got to keep the system. You break one law, and guess what? Now you're a law breaker. You're guilty. And Paul has already explained this to the Galatians. Remember back in chapter 3, he showed them this. Chapter 3, verse 10, he told them, For all who rely on the works of the law, for everybody's going to try to be justified by law keeping, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law, listen to this, are under a curse. For it is written, the law itself says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. So with the law, you need to understand it's all or nothing. You either live by it, keeping all of it, or you need to find another way. But the good news is that Paul's already told us there's another way. Repeatedly throughout this book, he has shown that the alternative to trying to live under the law, to trust in our own righteousness, is living by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 3, verse 13, just a few verses after what he says about being cursed, he says this. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Praise Jesus. By becoming a curse for us. What is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What was the cross about? It was about Jesus bearing the penalty of our, of our law breaking. He became a curse for us. That's why back in chapter 2, as Paul puts forth his own life as a model, he puts forth his life as a model of living by faith. He told the Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says this, and the life I now live in the flesh, my human everyday life, I live how? By law keeping? No. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And right after that verse, right after that statement of testimony, Paul adds this crucial point. He says, I therefore do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, listen to this. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The cross was a big waste of time. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But praise Jesus, he did die for a purpose. Amen? He died for a purpose. Christ died to set us free from the demands of the law so that we can now live in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. And so understand, beloved, with the law, it's all or nothing. You're either obligated to keep all of it or you're free from that obligation, that judgment through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the last all or nothing that Paul points to is that with grace, it's all or nothing. We see this in verse 4. Here in verse 4, Paul really draws the line in the sand. Look at it. He tells his Galatian readers, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And what he's letting his readers know here is that you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You're either saved by grace alone, or you're not saved at all. You either are saved by grace alone or you are not saved at all. Here Paul uses two key terms to describe this reality. 
He uses the term severed or cut off. You are severed from Christ. And what he's doing here is he's using circumcision language. Remember, I told you earlier that under the old covenant, circumcision was a sign of being separated from the world. But it was also a way of saying to a Jew, if a Jew rejected God, then they would be cut off from God's people. But Paul's taking that same language and he's using it here. And he's talking about these Galatians being cut off from the community of faith. Outside of the true people of God. And he describes it further as having fallen away from grace. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The reality is that in the Christian life, we live, we stand, we dwell in grace. That's where we stand. That's where we live. That's where we dwell. We dwell in grace. But if you are chasing salvation some other way, if you are trying to work for it, you are not dwelling in grace. Galatians, these, these churches in Galatia, with this game that they were playing, they were in real danger. And Paul wants them to understand, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. As New Testament scholar John Stott explains, listen to this. He says, it is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. Listen again to what he says. It's impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. Here's the thing, brothers. It's like trying to walk down two paths that go in completely opposite directions at the same time. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't have it both ways. And that's the point that Paul's making here. With salvation by grace, it's by grace alone. It's by grace alone. It's all or nothing. It's not some of God's grace and some of my works. When you really understand grace, that doesn't make any sense. You can't have it both ways. It's either riding on you, or you've come to the end of yourself and realize that your only hope is the grace of God. It's either riding on you, or you've come to the end of yourself, the end of yourself, and realize that your only hope is the grace of God. Now, there are some folks who look at this verse and think, oh, this is teaching that you can lose your salvation. Not at all. And so what this verse is doing is making very clear the reality of true believers as opposed to the mark of what I'll call false professors. You see, the reality of a true believer is that they have come to the end of themselves. They have come to the end of themselves. By God's grace, through his spirit, they have come to that place of seeing the emptiness of self-righteousness. They've realized that there's, there's no hope in trying to be good enough. Can't do it. And they've grasped the futility of looking to themselves as a savior. God has shown them through supernatural work that the only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Their, their hearts, true believers, their hearts resonate with that old hymn, Rock of Ages. Remember that hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I realize what a sinner I am. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You're my only hope, Jesus. True believers, that they understand that. That's why they've turned to Jesus. 
but the mark of a false professor. Someone who professes, they say, they have faith in Jesus, but they don't really have faith in Jesus. The mark of such a person is they don't truly embrace the way of grace. Instead, they're still trying to earn it. Still trying to work for it. They're still resting in themselves. And brothers and sisters, that's not grace. That's not grace. You can't earn grace. If you're resting in you, you don't understand grace. That's not grace. That's outside of grace. And Paul says that approach is cut off from Christ. That's not the way of Christ. So you either take the whole Christ, the real Christ, or nothing. With salvation, it's all or nothing. So, beloved, let me ask you this question. Do you have all or nothing? Do you have all or nothing? Please hear me on this. Seeking to stand before God on your own merits, even just a little, is a deadly game to play. Seeking to stand before God based upon your own merits, even just a little, 95% Jesus, 5% me, 99% Jesus, 1% me, even just a little, it's a dangerous game to play. Again, with Christ, it's all or nothing. Praise Jesus, he is a perfect savior, amen? Amen. He's a perfect savior. He has done it all. Sinless life, atoning death, triumphant resurrection. He even gives you the faith to believe. He's done it all. So here's the thing. If you have a weak Christ that needs your help, a Christ that gets you started, but then you got to seal the deal with all your meritorious works, you don't have the real Christ. You don't have the real Christ. You have a phony. You have a fake. You have a pseudo Christ. You have an anti Christ. Because you have a Christ that's leading you back to the law. And with the law, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You either live by the law and fail and face condemnation. Or you live by faith in the true Christ. And in him there is no condemnation. You either try to work a system as a slave to that system or you are set free by clinging to Jesus. And clinging to Christ is all of grace. It's the reality of coming to the end of me. The end of hoping in my efforts. Hoping in my wisdom, my ability, my goodness, my accomplishments. That religion of me, which is really what self-righteousness is all about. You've come to the end of me, and you're truly tasting and embracing the beauty We sing it. Do you understand it? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was, was what? Blind. But now I see. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see that your only hope, your only hope, The only way of true salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. 
Let me tell you again, as your pastor, my greatest burden, my deepest concern is that you do. That you do. Don't play with this salvation. Don't think, oh, I've grown up in the church. I do good things. I prayed prayer once. Don't play with this salvation. I'll just put it simply like this. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I praise you that you are a perfect Savior. And this morning as we've talked about this, I know in and of myself I am so insufficient to communicate these things. But I know a thousand years from now when we're in glory, this is the only thing that's going to matter. It's not going to matter how much money we made. Bible translation we were carrying how we dressed on a Sunday morning all the the good works we want to show off the thing that will marvel us for all eternity is that you did it all you did it all and we deserve none of it none of it But in your kindness, in your mercy to us rebels, you gave us grace. You lived the sinless life we failed to live. You died that death. You took upon yourself the judgment that we deserved. And then you you rose from the dead said, here it is. I've done it all. Here's the gift of salvation. Lord Jesus, I pray for every heart here, every person who calls this church home, for those who are visiting with us today, I pray for each and every one. Then they're not playing with this salvation. That you, in your kindness and mercy, your sovereign grace, have brought them to the place of realizing the complete, absolute inability in of themselves to undo what they have done and that you are their only hope. Oh Lord Jesus, you know that if, if I could climb in each head and flip a switch and help them to see this clearly, I would. But you are sovereign, I am not. So I pray for each heart here today May they see the gospel clearly and cling to it tightly. May they truly understand that our only hope, our only hope is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in your finished work alone. Guard us from making this dangerous error that the Galatians were making and help us to see that you are our only hope. These things we pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, let's stand and close with one more song.